You're listening to a DM podcast. They are like superhumans. The things they can do, it's that they turn up to the worst day of someone's life. It can be a 45, 50 degrees. It can be a dust storm. It can be any of these things. And they turn up to something that is catastrophic and they just take it in their stride. They are, they are really remarkable people. So, you know, for that reason, I was just always asking questions. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Last week I interviewed Ian Meadows, the co-creator and writer of the RFDS TV drama on Channel 7. This episode is along a similar vein as I've been keen to interview one of the actors on the TV drama to get their perspective also. I'm thrilled to say Stephen Peacock, known as Flight Nurse Pete, has agreed to chat. So here we go. G'day Pete! <laughs> G'day Nice, nice to be with you. I, Steve Peacock, the actor, am uh, not nearly as well equipped to deal with a catastrophe as Pete Emerson. So, um, as long as nothing comes up in the next in the next little while, we should be okay. <laughs> now, you grew up in in rural New South Wales, right? I did. Yeah, I grew up in um, regional. Yeah, I call it regional. I guess um, in Dubbo. My my dad was born out in Warren, and my mum was born out near Forbes, in a little town on a on a farm out there, and. Um, yeah, they met in Dubbo, and that's where our family sort of uh, was, and and still is. This mum and dad are still back there, and lots of cousins and stuff. My brother and sister and I um, have moved out or moved off to to different parts of Australia, but it was a great place to grow up, and um, I really treasured the the sort of the regional um, upbringing as a kid. Lots of sport as a kid, and riding around town on a on a push bike and swimming in the Macquarie River, and Having fun. It was it was a great place to grow up, and every time I go back there, I think, crikey, this, there are w- far worse places to be than um, than the central west of, of New South Wales. It's it's beautiful. One of my colleagues in the RFDS uh, here in Canberra comes from Dubbo. Is a Dubbo girl, and every time anybody of importance comes up that comes from Dubbo, she's got to immediately point out that Dubbo is actually the centre of the universe, and that just everybody else hasn't quite realised yet. <laughs> So this, again, proves her theory that probably Dubbo is where it's at. Yeah. Did you uh, end up going to um, high school and all the way through in Dubbo or did you end up travelling further? Yeah, I grew up, I went to Dubbo South um, Infant School and Dubbo South Primary School and then Dubbo South High School. And then um, uh, when I was in year 10, I sort of got a little, I was able, a little bit of a sort of scholarship type thing more for sport than, or definitely more for sport than academics, I can tell you, to a, to a, a school in, in Bathurst, um, the Scott School in Bathurst. So I boarded for the last three years of my schooling life. But um, 
yeah, I loved loved going to school in Dubbo. I had a really good bunch of mates the whole way through, and then yeah, moved to Bathurst and met a new bunch of good blokes there. Lots of lots of kids from um, from farms, a fair few overseas kids as well. So it was good to open my eyes to things on a more global perspective, I guess, at a, at a pretty early age, and it was great. I was very fortunate that someone let me let me in for half the price. <laughs> I think that's the only reason I got to go there. A lot of a lot of kids in rural, remote, and regional Australia go to boarding school. What was it like? I, I loved it. Um, I think boarding school. I don't know. It can be either. It's a bit of a sinkle. So it's like anything. You know, you, you either get there and you, and and it's it's top fun, or or maybe you get a bit homesick and, and you sort of long for being where you, where you were. But I had I had an excellent time. Like I said, I was lucky to get in with a good bunch of kids, and although lots of them had been there since year seven, there were lots of kids from um, more remote parts of New South Wales that it sort of made sense to I think a lot of them had gone to oh a fair few of them had gone to school of the air as, as little kids and then lots of kids who grew up on sheep and cattle stations do school of the air and then go to school in Sydney or all the regions but I was lucky to fall in with a good bunch of blokes who yeah sort of took me in even though I you know a lot of them had been there since year, year seven so I had a good time I was a bit homesick for the first couple of weeks but I remember my um my older brother saying whatever you do don't ring mum and dad for two weeks, and I broke on the second night. I think <laughs> <laughs> there, sobbing into my pillow, thinking of thinking of my dog back home and mum and dad. Uh, but no, I ended up having a good time. It was, it was excellent. It's a bit of a baptism, isn't it? Sort of like a forced independence for young young people. And but I think it's 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 harsh, but it's also really good. I think it allows a a person to realise that they are their own person and they can survive without parents and so on and so forth right there directly. I think so too. Yeah, I, for for me that was that was my experience of it. I was probably I loved my sport growing up, so I was, I was always playing tennis and cricket in the summer, and then rugby league as a little kid, and then rugby union in the winter. And so I, I was sort of used to being around groups of groups of other other fellas and sort of fitting in and. And that was good when I got to school because you, you sort of throw yourself into sport and that's a good way to, to, to make friends. But I was probably I was attached to the hip to my mum as well. I love my mum. So I was a little mummy's boy. And I think um, I think going away to boarding school um, was probably good to, to cut the apron strings for me. <laughs> Teach me how to make my bed perfectly. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's where I started eating veggies. I was so hungry every time I got to to dinner, even though the, the food at, the, at, at school wasn't anything compared to mum's. Um, that's where I just started wolfing down everything because um, you know there was there's no snacks when you come come back to a boarding boarding house in the afternoon <laughs> you gotta <laughs> you gotta eat up everything on your plate so it was it was great it was a good fun time. Did you decide at boarding school that you wanted to be an actor? Like at what point did you say this is the path I want to take, or or did you never really make that decision and sort of fall into it? No, I did make that decision. Well, my brother suggested it to me. We'd and it may have been either the year before. I went maybe in year nine or it could have been in year 10, but it was when there was a film that came out years ago uh, called Braveheart that um, that Mel Gibson made and starred in. And brilliant film. Yeah, it was a brilliant it's film. Great. and It captured my brothers and my imaginations and we watched it and we were um, we were doing the washing up after dinner and he was washing up and I was wiping up and he, he looked at me and said, Steve, why don't you, why don't you do that? And I remember... I remember just going, I remember we finished doing all that and I just remember going going out uh, like after that and just thinking, crikey, that is exactly what I wanted to do because I, I had no idea what I wanted to be. And from that second on, I did not stop, um, 
I didn't stop thinking about it, and I had no means. Well, you know, they offered things like that at school, but like I said, I was I was more into into sport and stuff, and I just had no idea. It wasn't from an, a family where that was ever, you know, anything that was on the cards. So, and I was probably, to be honest, I probably was a bit embarrassed to tell a bunch of blokes at boarding school I wanted to be an actor. <laughs> it just wasn't. <laughs> you wanted to play for the Wallabies, or you wanted to play Test cricket. You didn't want to. You didn't want to be uh, treading the boards of a theatre, but. Um, Anyway, I didn't stop thinking about it, and I would get all these books on all my favourite actors. So I started, you know, all the usual suspects. Of, you know, Mel Gibson was one of my favourites, and Daniel Day Lewis and Robert De Niro. And I had all the books with me at school, and I used to read about their stories. and And then um, when I was at Scotts, we had a my, my favourite teacher. My favourite teacher through my whole schooling career was a bloke called Martin Coit, and he was our art teacher. I, I was quite good at art. And he was also the first 15 rugby coach in my final year. So he was an interesting bloke in that he sort of, a bit like me, he loved contact sports and sport, but he also was a phenomenal artist himself. And I remember telling him, uh, you know, I sort of confided in him. He's, he sort of asked me what I wanted to do when I finished school. And I said, oh, I just kind of want to be an actor. And he said, well, you can do it. He said, I think his, his dad was a wool class or a, a sheep class or something. And he said, you know, I grew up in a family that wasn't anything to do with what I'm doing now, but you can do it if you if you if you've got the passion and you're any good at it. So he sort of gave me a bit of confidence to to think maybe it was an, an option. And then, yeah, then I finished school and went jackarooing in Burke for a year and then got to uni and that's where I, I auditioned for my first play and it sort of, um, you know, it sort of built from there a little bit, I guess. Yeah. Well, now you're like an Aussie heartthrob. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think there are plenty of people I know who would debate that. Uh, <laughs> I think you put Steven. anyone on the, tel- on the telly... Um, there's a chance that someone will say that, but um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, Stephen, i got to tell you that um, probably the number one comment we got on social media about the RFTS TV drama scripting is can we have more scripts where um, Pete has to take his shirt off? <laughs> well, you, watch, you, watch the, you watch the ratings fall off a cliff when they see, <laughs> when they see Pete with his shirt off. I think... Um, I think uh, I don't think I'd be doing anyone any favors. Thank goodness the RFTS. Thank goodness those uniforms we have to wear are so damn comfortable. It's the best. It's the best wardrobe I've ever had for a show, and we all say it on the show. It's yeah. so comfortable to chuck that gear on. It's there, hanging up in your in your little trailer there every morning, and it's just like putting on a, a warm blanket. It's just so nice <laughs> to not have to wear. Well, you know what? It's nice because my first job was on a uh, was on Home and Away, and um, my brothers used to, to joke when my family used to joke with me that um, my character's wardrobe on that must have just been a whole heap of empty coat hangers because I I never had my bloody shirt on. Um, so it's <laughs> it's nice to to be on a show where I'm fully clothed all the time. How are you finding uh, the filming of RFDS? Has it been challenging in any way or is it uh i mean i just i wonder because you have so many medical terms and processes and procedures and stuff like that that you have to learn and do on patients and i was just wondering is it pushed you out of your comfort zone a little bit or is it um been something that you've just taken in your stride yeah that's a it's a good question it's the first that was the first thing i balked at when i um when the opportunity came up to be a part of this new show rfds i remember we're in Melbourne. I was shooting something else in Melbourne, and lovely image in Banks. I think it was um, sent through the, the first two two episodes that Ian Meadows and I think Claire Phillips had put together. And I read the episodes and I thought, "Crikey, this is going to be a really good show" because they were really, really well written. And I read this character that they were sort of thinking of of me for, and I thought that's great. But then I thought, "Geez, am I 
<laughs> am I going to be able to do all this medical stuff? I'm, I'm such a chimp, you know. I'm, I'm coordinated with some things, but crikey, I haven't got the fine motor skills for doing what what these people have. What I've since found out they do, I didn't I didn't know if I'd be able to pull that off on in front of a, a camera. But um, I balked at it initially, but I thought, no, I've got a. It's an organisation that means a lot to me personally. Anyone that grows up in regional Australia or outback Australia, the RFDS is a huge deal. So I wanted to be part of it because of that. The writing was excellent, and then I thought. You can learn to you can learn to do anything, or you can learn to do anything for three minutes at a time, which is about as long as the scene's ever going to be. So, I threw myself into it, and we had good people to to sort of teach us what to do. And I'm a good study at that. I can watch what people do and sort of mimic it. So, um, I got into it that way, and then it just became very interesting to hear about the way they deal with things and how they have to. You know, you go into RPA or something, and you're surrounded by millions maybe billions of dollars worth of incredible equipment and everything's on hand and the rfds is incredibly well equipped but as you see on the show sometimes you're out in the middle of nowhere there are flies buzzing around you've got weather coming in you've got a million other things to deal with and the way the rfds um deal with those situations is just another level so it was very interesting to to learn all that stuff and to hear about stuff that had happened and and then you'd read these scripts and you'd think, you think, gosh, that that no one's going to believe this. That wouldn't happen. That right? wouldn't happen. And then they say, no, it did happen to old mate from from Wilcannia or something. And you think, oh, crikey, there's nothing, <laughs> nothing you can imagine. Nothing's too silly to have happened. It's it's just incredible, and the way they deal with it's amazing. Yeah, well, um, I was talking in my interview with Ian Meadows, we were talking about how this podcast has actually been fodder for a lot of the different storylines that go through. Uh, and I gave our listening audience some homework to see if they could go back to watch the RFDS TV drama and see if they could spot the podcast influence storylines because uh-huh. there's a whole slew of them that are all true stories that yeah. have just ended up being woven into the script. Yeah, no, it's, you know, as a writer, getting to know Ian, uh, well over the shooting of the first two seasons and I've got a few other mates that write that sometimes the biggest challenge can be story engine in other words you know what what you're gonna you know you might have a a show that's really popular and you think crikey what are we going to do next season but there's just this endless like you say (laughs) this endless story engine of of things that happen and in these incredible locations around Australia so we're very um you, you don't want anything bad to be happening to anyone but there's a there's enough that's that's already happened for us to um keep doing this show for quite a while. So, and how is it uh, filming out in Broken Hill? Have you found that climate and that landscape interesting as an actor, as on set to be working in and around? Yeah, I love, I'd, far out, I'd live out there. I'd be quite happy. If I could get a place out out on the Menindee Lakes there, I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> you wouldn't see, you wouldn't see me much. I, I think I, I love that open country. And Broken Hill itself is this, you know, it's this phenomenal little town out in the middle of, um, out in the middle of all of it it's it's so isolated when you think about it but it's got this incredible life to it and it's got enough good pubs and places to eat and places to get a coffee to, to keep people that it was sort of all relying on that these days but um i think so many so many people had come from melbourne and sydney and interstate to shoot to shoot our show that probably hadn't worked out there and so many of them genuinely so many of them thought this is I could easily live out here and be very, very happy. You, you don't want for anything. Maybe a beach, but you've got the Menindee Lakes, which I would argue is probably better. You don't have to worry about sharks in the, in the Menindee Lakes. 
So yeah, it was to shoot in Broken Hill was fantastic. There's no 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 traffic on the way to work, no traffic on the way home to work from work, and the town really embraced us. So it was it was excellent. It was a great great place to shoot. Oh, that's great. And what do you like most about um, doing doing the drama and working with the rest of the cast and crew? I've been lucky in just about everything I've done so far. I've had good people to work with. You know, you hear stories of some sets that aren't, you know, there's not the greatest atmosphere, but I've been lucky um, for, for a fair while to have done so many things with good people. And I think I remember talking to the, the casting director, Kirsty McGregor, in Sydney when she was casting this, and she said the most important thing is to get people, A, who are going to be perfect for these roles, but B, who are going to get along with each other because you're a long way from, everyone's going to be a long way from home. So she did assemble a really, really top bunch of people. We all get along really well. And on top of that, um, you know, you've got people like um, Imogen Banks and Sarah Richardson who are producing and, and Ian Meadows who you've spoken to. They're just, they're sort of the people steering the ship and they're all just excellent, really good people. And I think it's it's a flow down effect. If you get good people at the top, a if you get good scripts, lots of people want to sign on because yeah, you know it's a hard it's hard to get in this industry. I remember um, my agent ages ago saying, if you want to try and craft a bit of a career for yourself, you've got to try and you've got to be a truffle dog for good scripts. And because the best shot, best shot you've got at, at something being successful is if it starts with a really good script. And these were so lots of good people signed on, and then we got out there and just had a good time. We get through an an incredible amount. But it's so well organised. I think because the the RFDS means so much to people, just as Aussies, I think everyone wants to really dig in and go the extra mile to make sure that it's it's the best. It do, definitely does not feel like just another job. You know, I've like I said, I've never been on one of those things where you're sort of just turning up. But certainly on this show, um, it's just everyone wants to do a good job because it's such an important institution. And and you see those planes on the tarmac, and it's you just think how important they are to Australia and the Outback Australia. Yeah, you're a bit in awe of of the of the organisation itself. So, yeah, I think people are really proud to be a part of it and that comes out in the work. Have you or any of you in your family or friends and, and network ever been transported by the RFDS or had to rely on them? <laughs> we had a family friend out at, out at Warren um, maybe two years ago who came off his bike when he was um, mustering and he was in a very bad way. And I think when he came to, he said, uh, <laughs> he said, don't let that buddy Steve Peacock near me because um, <laughs> he's surrounded by flight nurses and he'd seen the show. And um, so he, he's the, um, he's the only bloke I can think of recently. And um, he, <laughs> his biggest concern wasn't the fact that he'd almost broken his neck, but that, um, that I might be, <laughs> that he might <laughs> that see, you might, see me looking might. down at him. Yeah, you might show up to, to rescue him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I remember when I jackarooed out, I jackarooed on a place out when I was 18, when I was out of school, out between Burke and Louth on a big sheep station. And I remember one of the first couple of days in the manager's house seeing the little medicine cabinet there that was from the, from the RFDS. If you, you could always, you know, if the kids were crook or whatever and they couldn't get into Burke, they would have a consultation with a doctor and you know there was all that and then we had an airstrip on the place that was ready for any emergency but no thankfully when I was there um no there were lots of we had lots of <laughs> everyone you come off your motorbike just about every day mustering sheep but um nothing worse than a, than a few grazers didn't ever have to call in the call in the cavalry for us which was lucky 
Yeah, that is lucky. Now, have you spent a lot of time actually talking to uh, real RFDS flight nurses or doctors in being able to do this role? Yeah, yes, and some fantastic people um, out in uh, in Broken Hill. Uh, one of the flight nurses, uh, Andrew, big, big fella out there, was um, he would make video, whatever the, the scenario was that we had to film in a particular episode, he'd, he'd do a video sort of talking through it. And we'd get sent that and he'd sort of, he'd, he'd talk through times when it had happened to him when he'd turned up to a to an accident or whatever it happened to be and what you're thinking. The main thing you I'm always wanting to know is what were you thinking when you t- turned up? What's, what are the first things you're, you're looking for? Are you feeling nervous? Are you feeling energized? You, what is it? And um, he was excellent to talk to about that. And we also had an onset um, uh, consultant, a fellow by the name of Dr. Tim Duncan, who does a lot of remote medicine, uh, remote area medicine and, and work for the RFDS as well. So talking to them, I, I think I, I probably probably annoyed them after a while because I was always asking questions. We all were because it's just it's one of those things. Unless you're talking to these people, it's, they're, they're like superhumans. They are like superhumans. The things they can do, it's that they turn up to the worst day of someone's life. And like I said, it can be in the worst environmental situation. You know, it can be a boiling, it can be... 45, 50 degrees, it can be a dust storm, it can be any of these things and they turn up to something that is catastrophic and they're just cool as cucumbers and they know how to just prioritise what they've got to do and then they've got this incredible skill set to get it done and then get this person back onto a plane and then they get in the air and there's a whole host of other things that can go wrong up there because of air pressure and turbulence and they just take it in their stride. They They are really remarkable people so you know, for that reason, I was just always asking questions about things they'd done and things they'd seen, and and always, you know, how what are you thinking? What are you feeling when you when you're turning up here? Or the most consistent thing was people saying, as soon as you turn up, that that patient is your top priority, no matter what you're thinking about or going through in your personal life. That person, from the moment you see them to the moment you hand them over in a hospital in Adelaide or Dubbo or or Sydney, that your their well-being and and keeping them stable and, and getting them right is all you think about which is good it's nice to know there are you know there are professions that require such um selflessness focus. selflessness and focus yeah, yeah. because yeah. um you know most of us these days are pretty worried about ourselves but to be in a job where your, your whole your whole job is to worry about someone else uh, is 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 nice to know i think i've interviewed a number of both flight nurses and doctors uh for the podcast over time and uh, what amazes me is that they are so focused on on the application of whatever clinical process or medical procedure to that patient that sometimes when they're telling stories on this podcast, they are so clinical because they're not emotionally involved. They are very much separated from the the drama that's ensued and that is that they are now finding themselves in part of. They are totally separate from that. And they can, you know, clinically walk through. So then I did this and I did that and blah, 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 blah. And and I struggle sometimes interviewing them because there's no emotion connected to it because they have removed themselves from that, if that makes sense, because they need to just be there professionally and not be caught up in, in whatever it might be. They absolutely amaze me. Um, one of them was talking about a man who got mauled by a crocodile and and he had a he, he was fishing and a, a crocodile came up out of the water and 
in her ter- in her words, degloved his hand, you know. <laughs> and I was asking her, what, is, what does degloved mean? And she goes, exactly as it sounds. And she goes into describing it and she's talking about the whole thing. And I, I found it really amazing. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. But I find it fascinating that these professionals exist whose whole job and purpose is there to essentially apply the right medical procedure or clinical procedure to save your life and and they they don't get caught up in all that other stuff you know what i mean it's amazing absolutely amazing it's an incredible skill i remember um yeah they say it's an algorithm you know you've got all these different algorithms these steps that you go through and you hit it you hit a barrier here you go to this other one you hit a barrier and to have the clarity of mind and as you you're exactly right. That's the one thing they say. It's there is zero emotion. Yeah. That, uh, there's no emotion clouding anything, and you know. Yeah. Very <laughs> compassionate. That's the first thing you've got to wade through. <laughs> but they can switch it off, and thank God those people exist. To be fair, and I think we we capture this in our show as well. Yeah, they switch the emotion off when they're at work, yeah. but then there is that to deal with. You know, yeah. when when they knock off, uh, uh, there is a real um, there's a real closeness to a lot of the the RFDS people we met where after, you know, after work you will go and have a have dinner or have a have a have a beer or wine or something and, and chat about what's happened because I just don't know how you could turn up every day and just like I said, you most of the time, unless you know you're delivering a little baby and it's this delightful moment you you're sharing with this family or whatever, you you're turning up to some terrible situation and um like you say that they're they're superhuman one of their superhuman powers is to be able to switch off any anything that would cloud that that vision to get um, to get a good outcome. So they're yeah they're remarkable people. I did find it really funny in series one where they had scripted that Pete Emerson is scared of snakes, and yeah. and that story comes from a real live flight nurse who, um, in fact, even it was scripted actually into the show. I was doing the interview with her on this podcast, and she said um, she had. There was a, a child that, or a, a, yeah, a child that had been bitten by a snake, and they said, you know, do you know what kind of snake it was? And the mother said, yeah, and then handed the flight nurse uh, a bag, which they just assumed was, you know, the gear that's to go with the child to, you know, whatever. So I thought it was, you know, pajamas or whatever, yeah. and it was the snake. Uh-huh. And she said she, you know, literally launched backwards into the cockpit you know, because she was terrified of snakes. And so I really laughed when I saw you <laughs> sort of playing that out on screen. I went, yes, that's it. Like, <laughs> you're, you're not scared of snakes, right, I presume? A hundred million percent I am. I Oh, are you? There was no acting. Oh, yeah. Who like? No, look, I know there are people that like him, but no, I'm not a fan of snakes at all. I've seen a fair share of them. And we sort of have a rule in our house. If they're, if they're out in the bush, yep. they're out in their terrain, they're well and good. If they're... If they're heading towards you, it's um, go get the shovel thing for me. I'm not, yeah, but yeah, God willing, we won't see anymore. But no, I remember that the house we bought here, the first day we saw a bloody copperhead. And um, yeah. <laughs> he just shuddered. Yeah, just don't make my skin crawl. And just, I remember that was always the thing when we were growing up, we'd sort of run up, up current of the, the Macquarie River. You'd run up for a few kilometres, then you'd float down. And that was always the fear. You'd just be running through. <laughs> doing everything wrong, running through long grass. And, and yeah, it was, it was always the fear. It was always stamp your feet, at least they'll, they'll get out of the way. But to see a red belly or a, or a brown snake or a black snake, no, no thank you. I'm, I absolutely am the same as um, <laughs> the lady had on. I am petrified of snakes and I don't want to see them. 
especially not in a, in a bloody plane. My gosh. <laughs> oh, it's good to know. Do you have any advice for people that live or work or travel in the bush in terms of like first aid or first responder training like CPR or, or even just, you know, basics on just being aware of where you are and having water and that sort of stuff? Yeah, look, I, I don't have any, uh, you know, I think everyone, um, you know, to, to know CPR is it's not going to hurt you. It's a, it's, it's a simple enough thing to, to learn. I think that's that's a, a great one. And I guess, yeah, if you're traveling in the bush or, you know, lots of people go, go on, you know, our, our country's built for big long road trips and I guess it's making sure you've got a couple of spare, spare tires if you're going to get, you know, get, get on some of those unsealed roads where you're not going to be near anyone for a few hundred kilometers because uh, um, we'll even longer than that and yeah plenty of water i guess and just remember that aussie sun's very hot you know at the, in the middle middle of the day but now nah, look i don't know like i said i'm uh, if someone scripted it for me yeah if, be there's a page of script here saying look pete pete's 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 um <laughs> advising some city slickers on how to drive between um <laughs> you know, cameras corner and somewhere else I'll be right, but yeah, I think use your common sense as, as much as you can. That's great. We're, we're so happy that Series 3 is happening next year and scripting's underway and I'm presuming, do they keep you posted? Like do you get notice of the scripts as they come through or do you just not know about it until you show up for the filming? Like how does that work? Well, you normally have a bit of a yarn to the writers beforehand and it can, I don't know, can be anywhere from six months out to a month out, I guess. But I know Ian, Ian, um, well, and I remember between before before we shot season two, he called up with you know um, probably a few months out, and they've always got an outline of what's going to happen, so they can give you a sort of you know character starts here and finishes here and A, B, C, and D happen in between. Um, so it's yeah. normally a chat, chat like that. But um, no, by the time we get the scripts, there's been a hell of a lot of work going to making them. Good drafts and redrafts, and 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 then when you're shooting it, they're you know they're constantly up to being updated and redrafted. So you sort of know the the main sort of outline of the the series, um, I guess. But um, otherwise, you're on a need to know basis. Otherwise, I think uh, writers worked out a long time ago. You've got actors ringing them up every five minutes asking to change this and that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ian did say I asked him for any tips or or any hints as to series three, and um, and he said he could only be vague, but um, Pete doesn't have a good year. <laughs> yeah, when when was the last time he did have a good year? When he was about fifteen, he decided he wanted to be a, a flight nurse. Sounds yeah. like a good career. <laughs> yeah, Pete's Pete's going to have an interesting journey. So, yeah, we look forward to, to seeing the next stage of of where Pete Emerson goes and we'll see what we can do to keep snakes out of the picture. Good. No reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness the cro- crocodiles are, you know, 3,000 kilometres north or whatever it is, probably even more. But, um, no, plenty of snakes out there and I don't want to see them. Otherwise, you could figure out how to get a saltwater croc that's come all the way down from Darwin down through the <laughs> yeah down the Warrego into the Darling and in the yeah next thing it's attached to Pete's leg. No thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Are you excited about the filming next year? Yeah, yeah. It's, when I found that out, I was um, yeah, I was very very excited. Having grown up in regional Australia and then spending that um, one year out in the in the proper outback. 
as an 18-year-old, there must, must be a bit of red dirt in my blood somewhere because I do, um, I do love it out there and I love acting. It's, my, it's, it's just such a, it's such a all-consuming and fun thing to do when you're lucky enough to be doing it. So to be able to marry those two things together and to be doing all that stuff out in the bush is um, it's a real dream job for me. So the longer we can do it, the better. If there's anybody listening at the moment that's always wanted to be an actor and wants to get into the industry, is there um, is there a, sort of a best track that they should take? Is it or is it really a bit of a roll in the dice and and good luck? Well, it is, but it's it's like anything. If you want to be um, if you want to be a uh, if you want to you want to play footy or cricket or let's say you want to do something like that. I mean, because it is a it's a it's a weird career. It's not your your average career, and it it is. You know, there's, everyone always talks about the unemployment rate for actors, but let's say it's like you know, if you want to be a footy player, you got to be playing footy as much as you can, and with yeah. good people and have good coaches. So I, I had no idea how to get into acting as a like a, as a young fellow, like I said before. So I just auditioned for a play at uni, which had an open audition, and um, got into it, and kept just doing co-op theatre, and whoever would give me a start, I would do it because I thought at least I'm practicing, and and I was always getting enough decent feedback to think that I was on the right track. So I think don't wait around for um don't wait around for someone. No one will it's very rare that people will come knocking. They've got to see you doing something. Yeah. And you gotta get good at it. You've got to be get your miles up. So um go find a theatre and audition. You'll find out if you're any good. You'll learn in front of a live audience, which is the best way to learn because the pressure's on and you've got immediate feedback to to work out whether what you're doing's decent or not. And anyone can anyone can have a crack at that. I mean like I said, I, I was not from a family that had any knowledge or I, if I wanted to get into agriculture, I, I probably I would have been set up as a young bloke um, coming from my family, but I was flying blind and that was the way I did it, you know, turned up, auditioned, got into things and eventually someone saw me do something and, you know, sort of snowballed a bit from there, but um, just get out and do it. That's great. Thanks so much for chatting today, Stephen, and and a really lovely Christmas to you and the family there at home. Um, you're sitting in front of me at the moment and you've got a little Merry Christmas sign behind you already, so Christmas decorations have gone up, which is lovely. Yeah, Christmas is a big part of, of, of our year, so we're back at you and lovely, lovely talking to you too, and um, hopefully we'll get to talk um, after season three. Hopefully it's another, another cracker. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it will be. Thank you so much. Thanks, Lana. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Word of mouth is always the best promotion for a podcast. So if you enjoy this podcast or a specific story, please share with family and friends. If you haven't already, join our Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community. And you can also send feedback, questions or comments to me directly at lana.mitchell at rfds.org.au. Donations to support the Royal Flying Doctor Service can always be made through our website at flyingdoctor.org.au. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.